Welcome to the First Baptist Church Keller Sermon Podcast. Each week we make available sermons from Pastor Keith and our staff on our website, fbckeller.org. And on iTunes, search for FBC Keller Media in the iTunes Store. And now, here's our pastor, Keith Sanders. I invite your attention to the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 1, we're studying verse by verse through this book. And today our text will be verses 4 through 6. The Father's Will is our title today. Yesterday afternoon, I had been out running errands and I came back in to find my daughter Aubrey watching a television program. And it was not her uh, favorite cartoon. Instead, it was an infomercial. And that surprised me a little bit. But as I sat and watched, it was very interesting. It was for a cruise line. And they were advertising a new ship that was family friendly and all of the restaurants and the wonderful food and games aboard. And uh, it reminded me of our text today because of a story attached to this text. The story is of a poor farmer who saw a commercial, much like the one Aubrey and I watched yesterday, and he always wanted to have a cruise. And so he saved his pennies, his nickels, and his dimes, and finally he had enough money to buy a ticket for his cruise. And so he purchased it, the day arrived, he went down to the port of call, boarded the ship and went to his room and during the day he went out and he met many, many wonderful and interesting friends. Um, but the friends noticed after a few days that always when it was time for, for lunch or, or dinner, he disappeared. And they always wanted to continue their fellowship around food, but uh, when it was time to eat, he, he always disappeared. And finally one day said, I'm going to his cabin and see what's going on. And he goes to the cabin door of the poor farm and he knocks on the door and says, hey brother, it's time to eat. Why don't you come sit at our table? And he noticed that the farmer was uh, munching on peanut butter and crackers. And he said, let's, let's go eat a meal in the restaurant. And the farmer was embarrassed. He, he sort of shuffled his feet and he said, well, I, I hate to admit it, but, but I'm a poor man. It took me many years to save the money to buy the ticket on the cruise. And I only had enough money for the ticket. I didn't have enough money to eat as well. And the man said, oh friend, don't you know that when you bought the ticket for the cruise, the food was included. So here was a man that for many days was in the very lap of luxury, almost starving to death because he didn't understand the feast that had been prepared for him. Unfortunately, there are a lot of Christians who are saved at a young age and they live the rest of their life just waiting to die waiting on heaven, and they fail to understand the feast of spiritual blessings that the Lord has provided for them. That's what the book of Ephesians is all about. Paul is warning us to come to some level of comprehension of the greatness of our salvation. Twice in the book of Ephesians, he stops to pray. And what he prays for on both occasions is that we would have a deeper understanding and therefore a deeper appreciation for who we are in Christ and what Christ has made available to us. Look at the first one of those prayers in verse 18 here in chapter 1. Paul says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. In layman's terms, he's saying, I'm praying that the light bulb goes off, that you begin to understand, he says, three things. Number one, the hope of your calling. Number two, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? And three, what are the surpassing greatness of his power towards us who believe? He says, I want you to know the resources, the wealth of blessings that are available to you, not just in heaven, 
but in the here and now for those who will, will study and, and come to the comprehension. And so that's been my prayers. We start the book of Ephesians. I, I want every member of our church, beginning with me, at the end of this study to have a deeper understanding of our salvation. And so he uses some very deep theological concepts here in Ephesians to help us come to that understanding. And I'll be honest, Ephesians is a difficult book, especially the first three chapters. Um, Steve Lawson, who is uh, one of my favorite Baptist preachers, is fond of saying, the moment you step foot into Ephesians chapter one, you realize you're playing big boy football when it comes to theology. These are deep things and we need to come to it with humility. Well, last Sunday we started on that first concept of deep theology that Paul introduces in chapter one and that is the Trinity. I don't think it gets much deeper than that, right? The Trinity, and if we ever need humility when it comes to studying the Bible, it's when we study the concept of Trinity. So we just introduced it and last week we ran out of time because we of course had the wonderful privilege of taking the Lord's Supper together. By the way, when I was coaching, I never admitted to losing a game. We always just ran out of time. And so that, that happened last week in the sermon. We ran out of time. So let's, let's back up just a little bit before we start in verse 4. And, and recall that verses 3 through 14 are one, is, is one continuous thought. Remember in the Greek, it's 202 Greek words. That's one sentence. Now the English editors, for our benefit, have added some punctuation here. But in the Greek... There was no punctuation. It was one continuous stream of consciousness thought. Paul, remember, backed up the truck of God's blessing and just unloaded it on us all at once. And now he's going to come back and explain one concept after the other what he means by these spiritual blessings. So when we talk about the Trinity, um, it's helpful to understand what Deuteronomy 6 tells us, that God is one, Right? There are three great monotheistic religions in the world, meaning great, meaning there's a lot of people that adhere to them. There's Judaism, there's Islam, and there's Christianity. All three of those religions say there is one God. Christianity is different in that we say God is one God, but he exists in three distinct persons. Now that throws a lot of people off because in our minds does not compute, right? How can one thing exist in three distinct persons. Well, that's why we need humility, because we have nothing to compare it to. And as humans, we love comparisons and we love illustrations and, and we can't resist trying to say, well, it's like this. And so that's led some people to say, well, it's like water. Water can exist as solid, liquid, or gas, but it's the same water molecule. Well, that actually is a description of a heresy called modalism, that God uh, exists but only as one person at a time. Well, remember last week we saw when Jesus was baptized. That can't be the case because God the Father spoke audibly and said, Behold my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. The Son was there being baptized, and the Holy Spirit descended as a dove. And so that illustration doesn't work. Well, some have said, Well, it's like a chicken's egg. You have the, the albumen, you have the yolk, and you have the shell, but it's all one egg. Well, if nothing else, let's not reduce God to a chicken's egg, okay? Let's just not try to illustrate it. Let's just accept it, as the, as the Bible says, on faith, and ask the Lord's blessing humbly, trying to, to understand, ask Him to, to turn the light on, as it were. Now, when we say that 
he exists in three persons distinctly, um, we have to be careful there as well. Because God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are presented in the Bible as equal in essence, meaning they have the same attributes. What can be said of God the Father, of his attributes, can be said of the Son and the Spirit. For example, we often say God is omniscient, right? He knows everything. Is that true of God the Son and God the Spirit? Of course. We say God is omnipotent. Is that true of all three? Of course. So in what way are they distinct? Well, for one, remember when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane and he was praying, he did not pray to himself, right? He prayed to the Father. The Bible says that Jesus always and ever did the will of the Father. He willingly placed himself in this human body under the prerogatives of, of, of the Father. And so there is a distinction, though they are the same in, in essence. Now, um, let, let's move on to our text today, now that you're sufficiently confused, okay? <laughs> now, now here, uh, as I said, is the work of the Father. In these 14 verses, we have the work of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Now, now last week, we were introduced to the work of the Father. Paul called him the Blessed One, right? the one who is inherently good, goodness personified. James says there's no shadow of shifting in him. He's always the same. There's no mixture of evil. He's totally good. So he's called blessed. But not only is he the blessed one, not only is that a description of who he is inherently, it's a description of what he does. He is the blesser. In fact, the Bible says that he has granted us every spiritual blessing in the heavenly Places. And how does he do that? Well, the scripture uses that two-word prepositional phrase that you're going to find throughout these six chapters of Ephesians, in Christ. That is, when we are saved, we are baptized into Christ. We are inundated, totally engulfed in who Christ is. That is, his attributes of righteousness are imputed to our account. And so God the Father, who is holy and blameless and all good, for him to have fellowship with us, who none of us meet that qualification, have to have something happen to us. That is, our sins have to be cleansed so that God the Father, when he looks to us, actually is seeing the attributes of the Son. That's what happens at, at the cross. And you know that I, I'm speaking here of God's eternal plan of redemption. I've been talking about this plan of redemption for the 10 years that I've been here. It, it, it's that the cross and the resurrection and the ascension were not accidents of history. The Bible says that in the secret counsels of God, before any of us were ever born, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit determined to save a group of people distinct and different. Peter calls us a, a royal priesthood. Paul calls us the elect, the church of the living God. Before any of us were ever born, that was the plan. And at just the right moment, in the continuum of human history, the second person of the Trinity, the eternal Son of God, left the glories of heaven, according to Philippians 2, and took on the form of a man in the womb of a virgin girl, Mary. And that he was born at just the right moment, and he grew up in just the right culture, and he was tempted in every way we are, and he went to the cross to accomplish what he was born to do, which was to die in the place of sinners. Because sinners are guilty, and we're all sinners according 
to Romans 3.23, all stand guilty before a judge. Because remember, not only is God goodness personified, he's also justice personified. Meaning that he has to punish sin. But John 3.16 says he loved us, the world so much that he gave his only begotten son that whoever would believe in him would not perish. That is, suffer what they deserved. And so what Christ did at the cross was substitutionary in nature. And so he literally died because the wages of sin is death. And then on the third day, he arose victorious over death, hell, and the grave. And what the resurrection did, among other things, is that it verified the truthfulness of everything the Bible had said up until that point. On Wednesday nights here, we're studying through the book of Romans. And we're in chapter 10. And last Wednesday, we came to one of my favorite passages. It's the passage when I'm trying to lead someone to faith in Christ that I always end up at. Romans chapter 10, verse 9 and 10. And Paul writes that if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, we will be saved. And I asked the question to, to the congregation Wednesday night, why do you think Paul chose, or why do you think God led Paul to choose out of all of the wonderful doctrines of the Bible, the doctrine of the resurrection, to tie that to, to our salvation? And I believe it's this, it's because the resurrection is the summation of all biblical truth. Because if Jesus had died and stayed in the tomb, he would have been proven to be just another man, just another prophet, just another one in the lengthy list of martyrs who died for a good cause. But he did not stay in the tomb. On the third day, he arose again. And the Bible says he is alive today, seated at the Father's right hand. And one day, he's coming again for his church. Now, all of that collectively is God's eternal plan of redemption. And what Paul does here in Ephesians chapter 1 is he lays it out systematically so that we can study it, look upon it, admire it, not for the purpose of admiring it, but so that it would give us an increased hope, he says, so that it would give us encouragement. I talked about a couple of Sundays ago how frustrating it is to see Christians, some of them in this church, who watch the news and they walk around with a hangdog expression, worried to death about how it's all going to turn out. Dear ones, we know how it's going to turn out, right? We know that our Lord is sovereign and that he is in control. And what the book of Ephesians is, is Paul's desire that every Christian would come to that understanding. So in your outline today, you have three basic points from the text. Number one, God's choice. Number two, God's timing and number three God's purposes so let's begin in verse one and read through verse six Paul an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are at Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ blessed be the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his word. And the first thing you outline is God's choice. It says here, Verse three, uh, verse four rather, just as he chose us. 
Well, just means you have to back up. He says, in the same way that he has blessed us through Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, he also chose us in him. Now, the word to choose is the Greek word electos, where we get the English word election. Um, And I'm going to break news to you. We have an election going on in our country this year. And you're going to hear much more about it in in weeks and months ahead. But we know what election is. It means to, to choose. Um, Now, there's a lot of confusion and misunderstanding about the doctrine of election. I heard someone was asked once, can you define the theological term of election? And they said, well, God voted for you, Satan voted against you, and you cast the winning ballot. That's horrible, okay? That's not at all what this means. In fact, if there's some choosing going on here, someone has to be the chooser. Well, it says, capital H, personal pronoun, he chose. Now, who does that mean? That's God the Father. He's talking here about, remember, the work, the will of God the Father. So, God is the one doing the choosing. So, who is He choosing? He says, plural pronoun, us. Now, it's very important to know who that us is talking about, doesn't it? Well, we already know because we studied the first two verses in the illustration. Who's the letter written to? He says, to the saints who are at Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus. And remember we said that the saints and the faithful ones are not two subsets of Christians. Speaking of the same group of people, he's speaking of all Christians because all Christians are saints, right? All of us have been set aside by God into his service. So he's writing as a Christian to other Christians and he's saying, here's some things that I want you to realize about your salvation. Number one, you were chosen by God. Now, if there's any reason for you not to to go around shuffling your feet and and wringing your hands, it's the knowledge that you were not some tack on, that you didn't make it by the skin of your teeth, that God knew you, He predestined you, and He chose you before you were ever born. He put His hand upon you. You say, Pastor, where did you get that idea? Well, from the Bible. Jesus said in John 6, 44, no one can come unto me, that is for salvation, I take it, unless the Father draws him. John 6, 37, all that the Father gives to me shall come to me, and the one who comes to me I shall in no wise cast out. And so Jesus says, no one's going to come unless the Father draws them. And he says, everyone the Father draws, I'm going to accept. What a glorious truth that is, that God has chosen in him before the foundation of the world those who would be saved, and he gives them to his son Jesus as a gift. But understand, this is God who is doing the choosing. Secondly, there is God's timing. When did he make this choice? Well, let's read on. He says, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Now, none of us existed before the foundation of the world. Some of us existed closer to the foundation of the world than others, but none of us existed before the foundation of the world. It means in eternity past, in eternity past, before God even, I take it, spoke a word and set the universe in motion, God had this plan to save a group of people unto himself. Now, there are lots of implications to that. For one, it puts to bed forever and always any notion that God chose us because we were lovable, right? Because he couldn't help himself. I think some people have the idea that that God looks over all of humanity and says, oh, that one right there. 
How adorable. Just can't keep my hands off that one. That, that's not it at all. In fact, the Bible says God looked over all creation and there was none righteous, right? Not even one. We were dead in trespasses and sins according to Ephesians 2.1. The implication is this. Because God chose before any of us were born, it was outside of anything that we did and outside of any potential within us. There's even more predominant doctrine that says God saw potential in you. And there's all this good in you that if you'll just tap into it. That's what Joel Osteen teaches. It's not the truth. It's a lie. God didn't choose you because of potential good in you. We're going to see in a moment why He did choose you, but it's not that because He chose you before you were ever born. This is what He says, of course, in Romans chapter 9. He uses the illustration of the brothers, Esau and Jacob. One He chose, one He didn't. Why? Well, He makes it clear it's not because one was more righteous than the other. Jacob was sinful. He was a trickster. It was because God decided to do it in his own timing. That's the only reason any of us are saved. It's not because of any goodness with us. You say, well, pastor, wait a second. The Bible says that that I have to call upon the name of the Lord. I have to repent. I have to believe. Absolutely. You say, well, I can't get my mind around that. How can God on one hand say that he gets all the glory and salvation because he chose me before the foundation of the the world? And on the other hand, if a person rejects the gospel and goes to hell, God holds that person guilty and responsible. Yeah, me either. I don't understand that. That's what the Bible teaches, though. So when we come to John chapter 3, verse 16, and it says that God so loved the world that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life, I'm going to preach that with the same enthusiasm I'm preaching this doctrine today. But Ephesians chapter 1 is not about that. Ephesians chapter 1 is about God's sovereignty and his choosing us. And so we must look at it from that perspective. There is the fact that, that no one is ever going to be saved against their will. But as we'll see, even the will to be saved is a gift from God. That awaits us in chapter 2. So, so there's God's work, there's God's timing, which was before the foundation of the earth, and then thirdly and finally, there's God's purposes. Why did God bother to save us? Well, here's what he says. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. God wants to take out of all of the wicked people in the world, which means all of us, a group of people, save them, sanctify them, mold them and make them into the image of his dear son and present them holy and blameless. Now to be holy and blameless are really two sides of the same coin. By the way, that does not describe anybody you know, okay? This is a description of God's character. None of us are holy and blameless. To be holy is a positive way of looking at it. God has inherent righteousness. His holiness is a positive truth. Blamelessness is looking at the same truth from a negative. He lacks sin. He is without sin. Remember in the Old Testament when those sacrificial animals were brought to the priest to be sacrificed there in the temple. What was the qualifications? They had to be spotless, 
blameless because that is who God is. He is holy and blameless. And so when the Bible declares us to be holy and blameless, we need to understand this is our position, but not always our practice. Our position, remember, what's the two-word prepositional phrase? Our position is that we're in Christ, which means when God the Father judges us, He does so based on the life and the attributes of Jesus, not on our sinfulness, right? He treats us as if we had never sinned, but we know that in and of ourselves we, we are sinners, and yet He desires that we have practical righteousness. That's called sanctification. Sanctification is the process over our lifetime from the point of our conversion to the point of our death or when Christ returns when God is separating us from sin. Now we may call that growing in grace. We may call that spiritual maturity. I call it sanctification. And here's the thing about sanctification. It is not an even unbroken ascent for most of us. There are pits and there are mountains, right? But when we look at the whole of our lives, if we're truly born again, we can look back and see progress over a long time in sanctification. Now, let's hasten to say this. We are never going to arrive at a place of sinful perfection this side of heaven, right? What I always say about the Apostle Paul, he was not perfect but he sure wanted to be. And if we ever come to a place in our life where we're satisfied with where we are as a Christian, it may be evidence that we never were born again. Because the more you grow in grace, the more you see how holy God is, and the more you want it. But that's a two-edged sword. Because the more you see how holy God is, the more you see your own sinfulness. And, and the things that you do and say and think that at one time you thought were no big deal, suddenly look gross and stained to you. And so this idea that as we grow as a Christian, we're continually getting happier all the time is not true. There is a sense where the more we grow as a Christian, the more dissatisfied where we are spiritually, right? Because we realize we have not attained that. A friend of mine is fond of saying, I think he's right. We have it just opposite of what it should be in the church. We are never satisfied with where we are financially, right? We always want just a little bit more. But we seem to be almost always very satisfied with where we are spiritually. We kind of got our ticket to heaven like that poor farmer. And, and we don't really have a deep desire to mine the riches of God's spiritual blessings that are available to us. Brothers and sisters, that ought not to be. The Bible says having food and clothing, let us be content. We ought to be content with God's financial blessings, but we ought never to be content this side of heaven with our spiritual progress. That's why we ought to constantly be hungering for the word and fellowship with one another and going deeper into the, the things of God. And so why does he do it? Because he wants to present us holy and, and blameless. He goes on and, and talks about the motivation of why he did it. He said, in love. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself. We're going to look in a few weeks at the doctrine of adoption. Don't want to get too far ahead. But you'll notice that the editors placed the period after the pronoun him, and then it starts a new sentence with the phrase in love. Now, some of you may have a translation that does just the opposite. They put the period after the word love. 
does not change the meaning. He's just speaking of the motivation of why God bothered to choose us. What was it? Love. Isn't that what Jesus confirmed to Nicodemus in John 13? For God so what? Loved. It is his nature to love. It is his nature to save. It is his nature to show mercy. And so he is aiming at making a people unique and holy and blameless unto himself. He's motivated by love, but he's also motivated, verse 6 says, to the praise of the glory of his grace. When it really comes down to brass tacks, the reason God does anything that he does, including saving wicked sinners like us, is to the praise of his glory, right? Isn't that what your children are learning in their catechism? Why did God save sinners for his own glory? Why, why did God create planet Earth? Why did God cast innumerable number of stars into outer space? Why does God make thousands of different species of animals for his own glory? Paul says even in the things that have been made, even in nature, God is honoring and bringing glory to himself. But the primary way that God has chosen before the foundation of the earth, before any of us ever drew a breath, to bring glory unto himself, the greatest miracle he ever performed is saving sinners. And he rejoices in doing it. He loves to put his attributes of mercy and grace on display. So there may be a person here today and you say, well, pastor, what if I'm not, not one of the elect? Doesn't matter, I can't be saved. Yes, you can. Listen, if the Holy Spirit draws you, what did Jesus say in John chapter six? Not one person comes unto me that I shall cast out. And so I can look you right in the eye and say, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. That is the invitation that God gives to you. If you come, the Lord draws you, you repent of sins and you express faith in him and he saves you as he says he will do. Then you say, that's because I was chosen in him before the foundation of the earth, <laughs> right? It's a paradox in our minds. It seems not to, to go together. The math simply does not compute, but that's what the Bible teaches. God in his sovereignty. Now over the next few weeks, we're gonna see how that process plays itself out. We've, we've started today with election, predestination. Before any of us were ever born, God chose us. And then at a point in time in history, in actual time and place, God issues to us what the Bible calls an effectual calling. It's what Jesus did when Lazarus was in the tomb and dead. Lazarus, come forth. The Holy Spirit calls us into spiritual life we call that our conversion, right? And what happens at conversion, among other things, is that we're born again. We are given life by the Holy Spirit. And at that moment, the Bible says, God the Father, the righteous judge of the universe, pounds his gavel and says, that one is not guilty. We are forgiven by the grace of God. We are justified. And not only that, he doesn't stop there. What we just read in, in, in the last verse is that he adopts us through Jesus Christ to himself. Isn't that amazing? God, the creator of the universe, now comes to us and says, you may now call me father. I'm adopting you into my family and all of the rights and privileges that that includes. 
Not only that, he is constantly sanctifying us. He's molding us and making us through life experiences, through prayer, through the study of the word, through Christian fellowship, more and more like Jesus. And you may be tempted to say, well, what if he gives up on me? He will not. We as Baptists believed in the perseverance of the saints, the preservation of the saints. Once saved, always saved. Anyway, you want to say it. But the source of our assurance of salvation is that God started it and God's going to complete it, right? If it were up to us to get saved, it would be up to us to stay saved. And John MacArthur says, do you know how you know you can't lose your salvation? Because if you could, you would. <laughs> but nothing can separate us from the love of God. It's up to him to save us. It's up to him to keep us saved. And here's how long he's going to keep us saved. All the way through glorification. Till we die or Christ returns. And even then it doesn't end because we have eternal life. We'll be with him, the Bible says, forevermore. So you don't have to eat peanut butter and crackers as a Christian spiritually, okay? We're going to study this Bible, and it is going to be a veritable feast of spiritual blessing, and it's available to everyone who will receive it. Amen? Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you for your word. Father, we are grateful that uh, you are sovereign. You're also merciful. Your goodness itself but you're also a righteous judge. And Father, we are sinful. We all have broken your commandments. And yet you didn't leave us in sin. You pursued us. You regenerated us by the Holy Spirit. You adopted us into your family. You declared us not guilty in justification. You are sanctifying us by your word. And one day you will bring us to glorification. Lord, we rejoice as believers. But Father, I'm aware there may be some in this room who have no hope in those promises because they don't know Jesus. They're depending on some inherent goodness or some amount of works, righteousness to win your love. And Lord, as we've seen today, that will never work. Father, you say, blessed are the poor in spirit. So Father, I pray if there's a person here today who's trusting that they have something to offer you, that you'll show them their spiritual poverty today, that they would come in humility with empty hands and outturned pockets and say, Lord, have mercy upon me, the sinner. Lord, the great promise from John 6 is anyone who comes into you, you will not cast them out. So, Father, that invitation is true today. Anyone in this room who will come can be saved. Lord, I rejoice that many hundreds in this room over the years have come to saving faith by your sovereign hand. I pray, Lord, that you'd bring many more today. And I pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast. To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas, or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, visit us online at fbckeller.org.